Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Um, thank you for your prayers, uh, Pastor Danelle. You're sweet. You're real sweet. I just got off the plane. I got off the plane at 745. Um, coming in from San Francisco, I did chapel service for the team out there and then had to fly back here to preach. So that's, that's that to which she is referring. Turns me over to the book of Philippians. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. We're going to continue our series on prayer. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul is writing. And he says in verse 4, chapter 4, Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us as we study. Paul has a deep affection for the church at Philippi. They are the church that partnered with him in his ministry, unlike any other congregation. And though he loved every church he birthed, and the entire church that he ministered to, some that he did not birth, i.e. the church at Rome, that he wrote to before he ever visited. And that's where we get our book called Romans. Though he loved all the church, he had a real intimacy with the church at Philippi. And that comes as a result of some sacrifice that the church at Philippi had made on Paul's behalf. Paul talks to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and, and 9 about the matter of giving and receiving, what it means for the Corinthian church to participate with Paul in ministry because Paul had so sown into their lives. He now needed some resources, and not only did he need resources, but uh, the church in Jerusalem was going through a very difficult time with respect to a famine. And so he was encouraging the church at Corinth, which seemed to have had uh, ample resources to be able to contribute, to get involved with it. And indeed, they had even set aside some things for this to take place, for them to participate. But it seems that covetousness had gotten into the mix, and now that which they had set aside for the benefit of Paul and or the church at Jerusalem they were now taken back and using for their own, their own needs. So he encourages the church at Corinth to remember what the church at Philippi had done, that out of their deep poverty, we would call it abject poverty, the deepest kind of poverty you can have, out of their deep poverty, somehow they sprung up with overwhelming generosity. And how is it that you at Corinth don't have deep poverty, but you give a little bit, if at all? What's wrong with this picture? And so you will see in the book of Philippians, over and again, Paul calling the church his beloved. And indeed saying, I long to be with you that I might see you and impart something to you. There is this affection that he's got. And as a result, he writes some things 
differently with respect to exhortations and injunctions than he writes to anybody else. You'll see the same kind of injunction, but it's written differently in other places. And we can take some great, great benefit from how he communicates to the church at Philippi so that we can begin to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and find the same kind of productivity that the church at Philippi found. Now, you can't get away from how the church was birthed when you talk about his affection for it. It was birthed through a woman named Lydia who was a maker of fine garments. And out of her home, she began the, the outreach to the church through Paul. And Lydia was the first convert in Europe. And as a result of her outreach and Paul's outreach, Paul then spread it to the city and wound up one day, like normal, preaching the gospel and then getting jailed. Paul got beat up and imprisoned, and that was, seemed to be the order of the day. That's a standard operating procedure with, with respect to the gospel in Paul's life. Go to a city, not being invited, preach the gospel, agitates a bunch of folk. They don't like him. They call the authorities. He gets beat up, put in jail. That's normally what happened to Paul. And indeed, he, he had a companion named Silas with whom he was ministering, and they both wound up in jail. And in the midst of their, their, their imprisonment, Paul has, has a remarkable way of seeing things that others don't see. It's not that he ignores the natural. He just sees other things. And so while he was in prison, he was singing hymns to God with Silas. Now it says that when he was put in prison, he was put in the inner prison. So it's the prison that's in the prison. And then while he was in the prison that's in the prison, it says he was shackled as well. So it's not just that they closed the door on him, on the prison in the prison. They closed the door on him in the prison in the prison and then shackled him to the wall. <laughs> you stay in here. You stay in here. But Paul did not feel imprisoned while he was incarcerated. He was still free. He was still free. Because he realized, whatever circumstance I'm in, the grace of God is with me to do what I need to do. And if he's called me to be in prison, then there must be people here that I need to reach that I could not reach otherwise. So he wasn't depressed about this. He looked at it as an opportunity. Which then led him to do things that most prisoners don't do. Now, if we were in that circumstance, I dare say that most of us would be saying, Oh, God, help. Please deliver me, oh, God. I know you promised, Lord. Please come now. Do something with the jailer. Let the doors spring open and set me free. Oh, God, you know I've been working. I've been serving you. I've been preaching this gospel. Jesus, do something for me. Jesus, Jesus. says that Paul and Silas were heard in the inner prison singing praise and worship to God. Now, that prison had heard a lot of things, but never that. A lot of bad language, a lot of complaining, a lot of stuff that nobody ought to ever hear. But they had, that those walls had never heard praise and worship, much less from the inner prison. And as they began to sing and praise, something happened. Earthquakes just coincided with an amen and now the prison doors had flung open 
And Paul and Silas's door flung open, but everybody's prison door in the prison flung open. It's amazing what your praise and worship will not only do for you, but for everybody else. Why is it important for you to come in here and sing with all of your heart and worship? Not just so that you can give God your attention. By the way, you're not that good. Your voice is not that melodic. Our songs are not that great. It's not that that thing, those kinds of, of extra, uh, 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 the, 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 the outward appearance attracts God because he's got much better versions in glory. Much better versions. The thing that attracts him is a heart that is on fire for him, even in the midst of difficulty. Those walls that never heard that. And so God said, let me amen with freedom. Earthquake happened. Bars flung open, doors wide open. And, 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 and you would think at this moment, Paul and Silas would be saying, Woo! God has set us. He's answered our prayer. Set us free. Time to go. <laughs> uh, that's what we'd say, wouldn't we? Hmm? Lord done answered our prayer. Time to go. The jailer realized what happened. He didn't know exactly why, but he knew this earthquake happened. And he went out to see what in the world had transpired, whether the, some prison cells had caved in or doors had flung open, and he saw all of them open. Now, when a warden sees every prison door open and can't find a prisoner, he knows everybody's gone. He knows it. And the penalty in, in Roman society, if you're a warden and your prisoner escaped, was death. They were going to execute you. So he puts two and two together and said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to die like that. The penalty, you were burned at the stake with your own clothes. He said, I'm not going out like that. So he took his sword about to take his own life. And as he was saying, whatever he was saying, for whatever God was attending his way that he appealed to, obviously it was heard by Paul and Silas, who he didn't know was in the prison. And Paul and Silas must have heard what he said. We don't have the record of it. But they said, hey, wait, 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 wait. We are all here. Now, I don't know what all means, but usually it means all. Usually it means all. Now, that means, I'm emphasizing that because if if it was just Paul and Silas, he, he would have said, we're both here. So what had the prisoners done who weren't Paul and Silas? They heard that praise and worship. They realized something was going on. They probably went down and Paul and Silas were doing a Bible study with them in, the, in their prison cell. Something, I don't know. But all of them were still there. Every one of them influenced by Paul and Silas's worship. The jailer just responds and says, I don't know anybody like y'all. What do I need to do to be saved? How do I get right? Just you tell me what to do, I'll do it. He gets saved right there. And then he says, listen, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow because Paul and Silas were to appear before the magistrates of the cities. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. This is Brett's paraphrase. But you've got to come to my house tonight because I can't explain it like you can explain it to my wife and my kids. So come on with me. We're going over to my house. And goes over to They lead the entire family to Jesus. And then all the servants and the slaves in the household lead all them to Jesus. And they baptize them all that night. So it says about midnight all this transpired with respect to the, the, the earthquake. So it's 4 a.m. before they finish. Now, as as marvelous as it is 
that Paul decided to stay once God had freed him. I mean, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That he didn't look at his freedom as being something to enjoy when somebody else would suffer. He said, I have to, I, I've, call, I've called the sacrifice and I have to lay down my life for somebody else's benefit. So if it means that I'm going to be discomforted so that somebody else might be comforted, so be it. Normal. And we consider this extraordinary Christianity. This is Christianity 101. You, dear believer, who have picked up your cross daily to follow him. You who have already died with Christ and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You no longer live for yourself but for him. You, dear Christian, who are not pursuing your own desires but are here in order to bless somebody else. That's why God left you on the planet. This ought to be normal. But it's so unusual because we all... We too often think God is here to serve me, not to use me to serve others. So, I don't know what happened, but, but, but one of these two conversations occurred. Here's Paul and Silas at the, at the warden's house. It's 4 a.m. Either the, 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 the jailer said, um... Listen, I want you to know we are really, really grateful. Like, my entire family is right. And God sent you to me. He put you in jail so I could get saved. I am so grateful for you. Uh, but, but if you don't go back to jail, I die. So, like, can, could, could, you, could you do that for me? I don't even think the jailer had to say it. I think Paul and Silas knew. And they probably said, listen, daylight's coming. They're going to come looking for us. And we're not going to be there, which means you die. So everybody, you got saved. We'll send you, we'll text you some good scriptures you can read later. <laughs> but we got to go back to jail. So your daddy is able to come home tomorrow. Amazing human being. This is how the church at Philippi got birthed, through Lydia and the Philippian jailer. And you talk about gratefulness. Was there anything this, this church wouldn't do for Paul? These people were so thankful. And so Paul writes, writes to them with great sincerity and affection. And he concentrates on three things with respect to prayer here in Philippians 4. One, the kind of conducive conduct that is preparatory to prayer to the kind of consecrated conversation we need to have in prayer and three the kind of custodial calm that comes as a result of the prior two peace and he says to the church at Philippi rejoice and again I say rejoice I never have to tell somebody who just received an inheritance of ten million dollars to rejoice it just comes natural You've seen those clips of people who receive the, the winnings of the publisher's clearinghouse. When they come to the front door, what happens? I mean, the woman or man just, ah! absolutely out of their minds. But you do have to tell somebody to rejoice when their house might be being foreclosed on. When the marriage is rocky. When the children aren't obeying them. 
when their job possibilities are slim to none. You do have to say, you know, time to rejoice. You didn't hear me? Let me say it again. I said rejoice. The only reason you would have to tell somebody to rejoice is because the circumstances are not favorable to do such. And the only reason you would have to tell them again is because the circumstances are really not favorable to do such. Not just normal circumstances. Unusually bad circumstances. So, rejoice. Hey, did you hear me? I said rejoice. (laughs) The church at Philippi was still going through stuff. So Paul was letting them know, don't quit getting happy now. And it's not that you ignore your circumstances in order to experience the joy I'm talking about. It's that you see something different. That God is beyond your circumstances. Your eyes are focused on the, on the eternal, not just the temporal. And Paul talked about, this is how he lived. First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it's how he lived. He said, after I've been through all this stuff, and he listed in 2 Corinthians 4, day and night out in the sea, beaten by brethren, no food, naked, betrayed. He said, I consider all these things momentary light afflictions. Not even worthy, verse 17 and 18, not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in my life when I see him. Therefore, I look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen, verse 18, are temporal, subject to change. But the things which are unseen are eternal. This is how Paul lived. And that's why he was able to exhort people from his perspective of saying, don't just look at what you're looking at. Look at something else. Watch what God is going to do before he does it. There's hope in the midst of this despair. Do not let your present circumstance define your perspective. Rejoice. Listen to me again. I tell you, rejoice, because God's about to do something great. And then he says, make sure that your, your attitude is right in the midst of your opportunity to rejoice. Now, in order to un- understand this passage best, you've got to understand what he said earlier. Remember, a letter is a continuum. And so we are best served in understanding what the writer is trying to communicate if we look at the balance of the letter, not just at one particular verse or two. In Philippians 1, 27 and 28, he ministers to them on their present circumstances. And he says, I am, I am really interested in you all making sure that you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or not, whether I'm present or absent, you may be found striving together with one spirit, standing firm in one mind, always working for the progress of the gospel so that when the opponents come against you, your testimony will be that which is is the sign of destruction for them because you're not alarmed by them and a sign of salvation for you. And what we see is his articulation of how they need to predispose themselves toward their opposition and then a reiteration of that in chapter 4. Rejoice, and I tell you rejoice, and let your forbearing spirit, your gentle spirit, your calm spirit be made known to all. That's what he said in verse 28. When your opponents come, act like they're not there. 
Act like the opposition doesn't phase you at all. Do not let a bead of sweat appear on your brow. Smile, because it's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Not that they are going to be destroyed, but that destruction is inevitable for most, but it's not it's not, it's not something about which you need to be concerned because your hope is someplace else. The destruction of the physical body doesn't mean much with respect to eternity. You've already died with Christ. So it's a sign of what is most valuable to them and of salvation to you. Are you listening? He says, rejoice and make sure that you come in the atmosphere of peace even in the midst of conflict. Let your sober spirit, your gentle spirit, be made known to all. And then I think he's waxing a little proverbian here, kind of Solomonic in his orientation, taking a a page from how Solomon communicated truth in the Old Testament, in the Proverbs. Um, Solomon would say something like, desire wisdom above gold, get understanding above silver. Now, that's not an exact quote from a passage, but this, that's called a, a parallelism. Using two phrases to emphasize both. Letting one refer to the other in order to amplify what the writer is trying to communicate to the reader. That wisdom and understanding are important. And I think Paul is doing the same thing here in Proverbs. Excuse me, in the book of Philippians. Saying, rejoice, let your forbearing spirit be made known to all. Your gentle spirit, one of control and solemnity. And then he says this. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Same kind of parallel. Don't be concerned about what they're going to do. See something you're not seeing in the natural. God is with you. He's able to protect you. And therefore, do not let anything that your opponents are doing alarm you. Be calm. Trust him. This is the attitude with which we need to come into prayer because this is the precursor to how he says, then you're ready to pray. And most of our prayer life, now hear me, is not based on this. Most of our prayer life has been learned from others who may not have learned quite well. Our prayer life usually is, (laughs) we get really, really spiritual when things are bad. Face it, most of your prayer life is predicated on things going really bad. If things are going good, You rarely have many conversations with God because most of our idea about prayer is that prayer is the means of last resort to fix something. It's not about communication. It's not about relationship. It's not about you changing in his presence. It's about getting him to do something for you because you are in trouble. Now, maybe you most mature Christians in here don't have this issue, but the rest of you listen to what I'm saying. Because the balance of Christianity comes to God on this basis. I'm in trouble. Help me. And their prayer life gets very active when stuff goes bad. But prayer is supposed to be that that is relational in its orientation. Not just always asking God to help you. It's not just about 911. It's about building something on the inside of you. And it's also not just about talking. Anybody in here know somebody who talks too much? As soon as you see him, you, they're the last person you want to ask, how's it going? 
Sit down for 30 minutes. And you're looking for that exit sign, aren't you? Can, will they pause? Will they pause? So I can just insert and say, oh, by the way, I've got some place to go. Any place to go. Generally speaking, you're that with God. The only time you come to him is when you want to talk, and rarely do you listen. It's not about him communicating things to you. It's about telling him what you want, what you need. And Paul is trying to help the church at Philippi know that we don't need to come to him just on the basis of urgency and fear and not being able to deliver ourselves, understanding our weaknesses and needing him to help us. We need to come to him with some degree of confidence, knowing that he is our God. And that prayer is not just that which talks to him about everything, but it's that which puts us in a position for him to talk to us about everything, communicate to us, and change us from the inside out. Every moment of prayer ought to be that which leaves you different than when you came into it. That you come out more resolved about how God's going to help you and strengthen you. You come out more loving him, wanting to be more holy, more like him. That's the way prayer ought to be. So he says this, rejoice, let your gentle spirit be made known to all. The Lord is near, don't be anxious. Trying to communicate, this is how we need to be when we come into prayer. This is how we prepare our soul. And then he says there are three things that we need to do when we are in prayer. Pray, and that's a method of prayer. Supplicate, that's an entreaty. That's urgent. Not just the orderly prayer that we need to present, our normal communication with God back and forth. And then lastly, always come with thanksgiving. So consecrated conversations. We need to pray and reference last week's message. Orderly prayer, the normal method of communication that you have with God. Yes, there ought to be petitions, but there also ought to be a listening ear. So you ought to come with normal times. And, and your intimacy with God should not be replaced with a catch-as-you-can moment. We should always be in prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 says pray without ceasing. So that doesn't mean you talk all the time. That means you are in constant communication with them. We ought to always be in prayer. That means that we are filtering all things through his will. That when we are in conversation with people, Lord, we, we have one ear open to what the person is saying, another to the Spirit. Lord, what are you doing? How do you want me to participate? How can I help this person? How can I bring to bear your kingdom to this ungodly reality? What can I do? You're always in communication with the Father about bringing his will in the earth. But you cannot, you, you should not let these moments of unbroken communication replace the intentional intimacy you need to have on a daily basis with God. That though we need to, to walk with him all day long, and never have a broken time with him. There ought to be something that gets you up in the morning or keeps you up at night. A, a, a solitude place where you get with God without the distractions of email, telephone, and you allow intimacy to do things that on the way prayer can't. There ought to be some order to your prayer life. Secondly, there are those times when you need something in a minute, urgent. 
supplication. But how you supplicate makes all the difference to your growth. I think Paul mentioned all of these things that need to be done. Meaning the, the, the kind of people we need to be when we enter into prayer so that we would know how we need to approach urgent moments. Because most of our urgent moments sound something like this. God help! And what is communicated through that? I'm in trouble and I'm scared. I don't know what's going to happen and if, if you don't intervene, it's, it's not going to be good. So I'm desperate for you. Nothing wrong with desperation but a lot wrong with the motivation behind it if you are not in faith. So let me, let me detail to you a moment of desperation that a saint had in the Bible that ought to be fueled to your prayer fire and allow you to come into to the presence of God a little bit different. David was in trouble, Psalm 26. We think he was writing this, writing this psalm on the basis of having... To, to run away from Saul. He's being pursued by Saul. Saul is the present king of Israel. David is, is the successor to the throne. But Saul does not want David to take the throne. And so he's trying to kill David. David has been nothing but loyal to Saul. He has always chosen not just the high road, but the highest road. He has made great decisions on behalf of Saul. He has fought for Saul's honor. He's done everything perfect with respect to how he has treated Saul. Has David been perfect as a human being? No, nobody ever has. But he has been right. And we think Psalm 26 comes as a result of him running from Saul but appealing to God to fix this. And he doesn't come to God out of fear but out of faith. And he says this, Psalm 26, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I've trusted in you without wavering. Examine me, O Lord. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I don't sit with deceitful men, nor do I go about with pretenders. I hate the assembly of the evildoer, and I will not sit with the wicked. I've washed my hands, and when I do it, I do it in innocence. As I go about your altar, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving your wondrous works. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Oh, God, don't take me along away with evil men, men of bloodshed, in whose hands are wicked schemes and in whose right hands are bribes. But as for me, I walk in my integrity. Be gracious to me and redeem me, O Lord. My feet stand in a level place. And in the midst of the congregation, I will bless you. Does that sound like a man who's scared? That sounds like a man who's desperate, but not scared. And he's coming to God on the basis of faith, saying, I have lived right. I have done right. Perfect, no, but consistent, yes. And I have lived according to my integrity. And Lord, I know what your word says about somebody who lives like me that you will protect me, you will guide me, you will, you will watch my back, and I'm coming to you on the basis of that today. Vindicate me, oh God. When you've got the confidence that you've lived well, you can come into prayer differently. Are you listening to me? 
Now, that does not mean that we do not need the mercy of God and somehow we are demanding that God do something for us. It has nothing to do with that. I need his mercy every day of my life. It's the only thing that allows me to breathe. He is so kind to me. Nothing of my righteousness commends me before him for him to do anything for me. I am desperate for his kindness just to survive. Yet I know according to his word that if I live right, he said he would do stuff for me. And so I remind him of his promises and say, Lord, you said this about me. I haven't seen it yet. The enemy is in hot pursuit of my life. So I'm asking you, God, today, vindicate me. Let the integrity with which I've lived be that which is seen by everybody. And you beginning to commend me as being right. I don't want you to get my enemy. I just want you to fix this. You can do that, which is very different than the person who lives from day to day just trying to get by. Not trying to be righteous, just only trying to get to heaven. Happy about their salvation, but does not consider the lordship of Jesus anything to regard. And so obedience is far from them. So they have no integrity with which to present God. All they have is a life that has not been lived well. And so they are dependent on his mercy. Deliver me, oh God, please, because I made another bad decision. I drove my life into a ditch one more time. Oh God, help me. Lord, don't let her be pregnant. Stupid prayers that did not have to be prayed if somebody had made a better decision earlier. Yet, prayers that need to be prayed because you're in trouble. I don't want to live my life like that. I'm trying not to live my life like that. I don't want to always have to appeal to my God because I've done wrong. Vindicate me, oh God, because I've walked in my integrity. That's how Paul is appealing to the church at Philippi. Saying, pray like this, live like this, then you can come to God like this. This is a fourth service. I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. He then says, come to him with thanksgiving. You not only thank him for what he's done, and you might have a... And see, thanksgiving was so important to the church at Philippi because he had to tell them to rejoice, which meant there weren't things in the natural about which they could rejoice, which automatically leads you to a road called complaining that immediately makes you less thankful about everything. So when you got to command somebody to rejoice and remind them to rejoice, you also have to say, hey, thank them. I know it's hard. I know you're about to lose everything, but thank them because he has treated you better than you deserve. When it's really bad, when you can't figure out a way out, when you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel, just remember this, you're not going to hell. Now, now that's, that's the end product of what he's done for you. 
But what he's done for you is forgiven you of all your sin and redeemed your life and given you his last name and treated you like a son or a daughter and not made you suffer for all your sins. He's amazing. And if that were all he did, thanksgiving ought to flow from your lips like a river every day of your life. If that's all he did for you. But he's even done more. Keeps giving you breath. Let you use his resources on the planet. Breathe his air. Drink his water. Eat his food. And then gives you a job. You may hate your job. But it's your job. There are a lot of people that don't have your job. Be thankful you got your job. And then you need to thank him for the stuff that he hasn't done. That he's going to do. That's what faith does. Faith looks out there and says, Lord, I haven't seen it yet, but I know you're taking me someplace. I don't know where it is, but I know it's going to be better than where I am. Lord, I believe you're going to make me into somebody that I'm not yet. I don't know what I'm supposed to be, but I know I'm supposed to be better than what I am now. So I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for all the things you're going to fix, and you are working all things together for my good. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Then lastly, Something happens when you come to God like that. This warrior and guardian called peace takes custody of your mind and your heart. Takes control of your emotions. And he's really good at what he does. Says peace that passes all understanding. Brett's paraphrase. Peace that doesn't make any sense. When there's conflict every place around you, you're cool. You're not, you may not be happy about what's going on, but you are content because you know God's got your back. That though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil. Because he's with you, his rod and staff comforts you. Peace fills your soul. And when everybody sees all the circumstances that are going around, they're thinking, you got to it's got to be bad. I mean, how you doing? How you, how you feeling? How, tell me really how you feeling. And, and you can be real and say, you know, these circumstances are horrible. But I know my God is bigger than every one of them. Bigger than every one of them. So really, I'm pretty content because I know he's got it. Don't feel very good, but my feelings don't matter. Feelings don't matter. God's got this, and somehow he's going to fix it all so it works out for my good. Peace does a good job of guarding your heart from every fiery dart that would accuse God to you or tell you the circumstances are different than what God says they are. Be a sentry. Takes custody of your heart and your mind so that if any fiery dart any lie comes from the enemy it can't get through it says go not here not here this is the kind of prayer we need to employ come correct so you can think like this and pray like this and watch what peace will do for you let's pray